Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. I, I think it's I think it's um, a trust in the regulator to uh, appreciate the corporate perspective on fairness as well. That that seemed to be a little bit to jump out to me because to to take this that other level, this goes back to the conduct issue. This goes back very much to what we saw happening in the Royal Commission. On the one hand, there's testimony that we're very, very sympathetic with where the customers had um, a significant impact to life to their detriment based on whatever advice they got, whatever the incident was. And uh, But we also had the, the, uh, the opposite testimony from the organisation who thought that they had warned the customer that they had been fair. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine and the GRC Professional Online. And today we have Naomi Burley. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about the ASIC Forum um, that happened last week. And just and in case anybody noticed that there were no podcasts last week, and we have two this week. We have this one, as well as an interview with Julian Hunt from Flight Centre, um, talking a little bit about sanctions, something that we didn't really cover at the AML Financial Crimes Congress. But anyways, on to the topic at hand. So if any of you went to the forum, you know it was very interesting. You got a lot of interesting perspectives from the regulators, and it was more of a global perspective. And um, we had IOSCO there as well. So we had regulators from Canada, I think somebody from the UK, um, Hong Kong, I believe, was there as well. Um, and I, Singapore was represented. Yes. Singapore yes. was represented. And so... It was an interesting way to see not just how Australia was coping with some of the conduct issues that have been coming out, but what other regulators had to say about it as well. Um, before we sort of jump into like the main meat of this podcast, I think two things that to pull out really was, for me, was the climate change piece and that conversation around climate change risk being a bit of a misnomer. Climate change is not a risk in itself, but it's actually a big umbrella term for many little risks, which is why um, so many boards might be having challenges understanding what that means for their organization. And of course, the further development on that technology conversation, which is a bit confusing because they use the words reg tech and soup tech interchangeably. And sometimes you're not sure if they're talking about the industry perspective or the regulator perspective. But ASIC is definitely thinking about the regulator and their ability to monitor you better. And they're moving closer to that real time regulation um, sort of reality, which I guess sounds a bit science fiction, but really isn't anymore. Um, But yeah. but now I guess let's move on to sort of the, the meat of the forum and what would, you know, would concern our members. So, Naomi, tell me a bit about some of the things that stood out to you. Okay. Thanks, Kwame. <laughs> and, and apologies to everyone having to listen to me yet again. Um, <clears throat> but the forum was an interesting one. As you said, they had the IOSCO guests there. So uh, there was a little bit of that at the start. And I did kind of go into that session thinking, okay, well, that's great for ASIC having all these guests here. But it was... It was very interesting uh, to have them be very frank about the experiences they had in their regions in terms of conduct and technology and changes in market. And it's all very, very similar to us, um, their struggles as regulators with the powers that they actually have and um, how they work with their partner agencies in their region. So it was really interesting to get that kind of perspective and to understand that despite all the press around the Royal Commission, we're not alone in some of the the conduct issues, the rapidity of change in the market and and those kinds of things are shared globally, Um, which sort of seems like something you don't need to say, but it's good when it's said again. 
But in terms of um, our take on the ASIC forum, one of the exciting things we were looking forward to was meeting all the commissioners. So I think that expanded capability for ASIC was a big takeaway. They've obviously now had the chance to jump into some really strategic conversations, agree a way of working together and act collaboratively and have been proactive about that relationship with APRA as well. So I think we'll actually see a more uh, cohesive across um, across an organisation strategy from ASIC. So when you get a knock on the door from ASIC, it won't be just, oh, we found this tiny little issue here. It's like, well, we've been having an interesting conversation at ASIC about your organisation and it, you, everyone will be pulled in. So directors need to be... Um, I think the time for exception reporting is well and truly over and I think um, directors will need to be getting out there uh, a little bit more time and a little bit more of a microscope across everything and, and have, spending a bit more time with their compliance and risk teams to get a real feel for completely across uh, the complexity of the products that they offer as well. Um, the the other big thing, I guess, uh, from our thing, conduct continues to be a, a theme uh, with this strategic focus that ASIC's been able to take is this whole anticipating future trends in the market that, that and so trying to be that little bit ahead. ASIC seems very aware, um, as they should be, that the lag in, in regulation um, impacting on issues as they emerge. Um, and they seemed genuine about trying to anticipate a few things as best they can um, in the role that they have um, in the scheme of things to anticipate and try and reduce uh, customer harm. I guess is why this this conversation always circles back to conduct. Uh, Regulation can never hope to be ahead of these trends. Um, And so conduct is, and and personal ethics of the organisation needs to really be at the forefront of anticipating where customer harm might happen. Um, They also seem to have very much processed the Royal Commission findings and recommendations and they seem very committed to moving forward with those regardless of what uh, the election held, you know, a day later was going to was going to result in. Um, so they seem very, very committed to upping their game and upping everything else happening in the market and, and have taken um, quite a few lessons from the Royal Commission findings. So those were sort of my big ones as well as that whole regulatory toolkit. I know we'll be talking later a bit about the focus on the why not litigate, but the things that really made my ears perk up was the close and continuous monitoring piece actually. Uh, yes, definitely. And that was something that was definitely touched on when they had the, the Meet the Regulators panel and they yep. tried yep. to talk about where that fits within the why not litigate conversation and the fairness conversation, yeah. which of course, I guess, leads us to our next very interesting topic. Um, so one of the things that I noticed from sitting in the breakout room <laughs> away from the actual conference room was some people a little bit confused about that definition around fairness. Now, on the one hand, we had you know, everybody up there sort of defining fa- fairness to a degree. And, you know, you had Cathy Amore, the asset commissioner, saying, you know, that we have defined fairness for you. And yet at the same time, we still had attendees at the forum sitting down at the break room, you know, over coffee saying, we still don't grasp what this fairness thing means. So yeah. I, I think it's I think it's um, a trust in the regulator to uh, appreciate the corporate perspective on fairness as well. Mm-hmm. That's That seemed to be a little bit to jump out to me because to... 
to take this that other level. This goes back to the conduct issue. This goes back very much to what we saw happening in the Royal Commission. On the one hand, there's testimony that we're very, very sympathetic with where the customers had um, a significant impact to life, to their detriment, based on whatever advice they got, whatever the incident was. And uh, But we also had the, the the opposite testimony from the organisation who thought that they had warned the customer that they had been fair. So there's going to be a disconnect in perceptions and customers, as we know, everything is fine right up until it's not fine and everything is fair right up until it's not fair. And so there is this... uh, there is this sort of grey area, I think, when you are in the practice of implementing a compliance framework where you understand that a customer might come back and complain about X, Y, Z, but being reasonable, you actually agree with your corporate line that, that you've, you've taken all the care you can with that and that at a certain point, there is a handoff to the customer to be responsible. So that's the grey area, I think, we're working in with this fairness. Um, there are obviously some products that are completely unsuitable and people have particular opinions about those and, and no retail investors should be investing in those, for example. But it's that grey area around that. And I think it's going to come down to your organisation being genuine and to have documented the process it went through to check that you, you think you're being fair and why you think you're being fair and to have that... Um, reasonable and to test that perhaps with customers um, and sort of demonstrate that for ASIC and then if then if that comes up and that grey area comes up you've got something to to go back to rather than keeping it at a high level sort of um, you know sort of discussion in theory about things check in um, I think is is the big thing, not necessarily with the regulator if you don't want to do that, but check in with your customers. Um, so there's processes around it, but I think that's where that grey area sits and there is a risk there and I think any compliance person would be um, would not be being honest with themselves if they said there wasn't. Right, right. And I guess that sort of leads into the next question. If you fail on that fairness question, of course, it's what's going to happen afterwards, that penalty element, which goes to, and I think somebody at the forum actually said this, the three most quoted words from ASIC, which is why not litigate. And I think they went to some pains to sort of define what that really meant. It didn't mean they were just going to jump straight and take you to the courts, but there was this whole process and this sort of, I guess, realignment of approach to a breach in figuring out, you know, whether something was directly malicious and that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. I think I think the funny thing is they talked a lot about using the entirety of the regulatory yes. pyramid, but it's which end of the regulatory pyramid this logic is going to come from. So yeah. rather than coming from the radio, well, step one is we start at at this end where we give you a nice little warning and see what you come back with. It may well start at the pointy end mm-hmm. and and start from the right. Well, we've had this. Let's go through and tick the boxes and see whether we should litigate. So I think in practice, it'll actually be a middle ground because there's a lot of work in eliminating the why you shouldn't litigate. But also from the perspective, if you think back to the Royal Commission, um, ASIC actually didn't get the opportunity to really establish the case for why enforceable undertakings are a really effective tool. Um, And they they were... um, not painted in a in a, a very uh, complementary way for using that tool, whereas in practice, compliance professional knows how useful that is, how mm. it actually resources, how 
the the organisation has to go through all the steps to remediate and it helps build a good compliance framework to build sustainability within all that organisation. Litigation may not always achieve that end. So there's immense value in enforceable undertakings. However, they never got to make that case. So this may just be another way of shifting around um, that if someone comes back later and say, well, why didn't you take them to court? They've got their processes and yeah. and logic documented that they think there will be an ultimate benefit by more closely monitoring, by doing an enforceable undertaking, by doing a number of other things. The one weakness, I guess, in an enforceable undertaking is you hand it off and the organisation has a set period of time to get it right. If during that set period of time they aren't getting right, no one's necessarily monitoring them because ASIC didn't have the resources. So this is where your close and continuous monitoring might be a more useful tool for some organisations where ASIC suspects that um, they're not going to make a genuine go of it, you know, but it's that one step away from litigate and then that might be your only second chance. So I think they are going to use a variety of tools. I don't think it's going to be litigate all the time. Otherwise, they would have said we're going to litigate all the time. Mm. Um, but I think they they have to update their processes. They have to rebuild their trust and they have to prove why they've done what they've done and when they've made certain decisions as well as entities. Um, but I also think that they've also noticed where the weaknesses are in enforceable undertakings as well as them being valuable there are weaknesses with them yeah definitely and i think somebody did say that um in one of the panels that no we we can't infor we can't go after every single thing mm -hmm. um they're just not resourced to that and, level and they're not resourced yeah. to that level and it's not appropriate but they now have penalties under 912a which is also a great regulatory tool so that's the other thing um you know that that um that entities also need to be aware of, you know, why not Why not just go straight for penalty? Yeah. So the whole toolkit will be used. Um, I think it's just a really catchy line to get attention and, um, and if compliance professionals need to use that with their boards, um, then go right ahead. But be mindful that ASIC has said repeatedly throughout the forum, it will be the whole toolkit that's used, mm. but they will be looking at why wouldn't they yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess to play a bit of devil's advocate here uh, on that subject of enforceable undertakings, um, I do remember um, one of our members, Peter Winty, gave a presentation to a group of our members, and, and he'd operated in the capacity as an independent compliance expert before, so he was well aware that um, enforceable undertakings can be painful in their own way. They're mm -hmm. very expensive, they're not as flashy as penalties, but I mean... You have to restructure the way you invest, resource, and then, of course, they're monitoring you for about three years to make sure that you've actually done the thing that you've... That's right. There are, yeah. they, they can be very robust. Um, where they don't work is where an organisation does not take them seriously, where they think that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card and they get to the end of whatever the 12-month period was and they've got a month to go and they suddenly employ a huge team of compliance people to pull the rabbit out of a hat. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's where they can meander along for a while until they're meant to deliver. Uh, but, yes, they're, they're a quite robust tool, but they're not public. No. They're not... The process for arriving at the decision about awarding an EU, probably ASIC didn't document well enough. So when it came to the Royal Commission, um, it wasn't obvious and it wasn't explainable. So, you know, they, they've got to balance the lessons they learnt out of the Royal Commission as well. 
Right, no, definitely. And of course, you mentioned um, 912A, and that is something we're actually going to come back at a bit later with Carol Ferguson, um, who is really the expert in that area and can sort of lay out the nuts and bolts of what that will mean for your your organization and maybe, you know, raise, also look at some of the gaps that we have to consider in terms of that relationship between the regulation and the regulatory guide that put out by ASIC and some standards that have been referenced that apparently may not exist mm. anymore or mm. don't exist in that capacity anymore. Yeah, that's right, that's but right. you'll get more about that a bit later. Um, is there anything else from the forum that struck you? Other I, than I guess I was really interested that ASIC had on its schedule things like looking at climate change risk and yeah. looking at consumer data risk again. Um, so I think that that is something that everyone does need to have on their radar. And the presentation by Macquarie Bank was really interesting from that perspective, that, it, that it's on there. Yeah. I agree with the, the comments you made earlier that climate uh, climate change risk isn't one single risk. It's, it's a multitude of risks that flow on through. Um, and so educating your board and being proactive and anticipating future regulatory um, interventions in this area is a very sensible thing to do. The same with your technology piece and the same with your computer data piece. The last thing you want to do in those three areas is to get yourself in a situation where you have legacy decisions or legacy systems that have uh, put you behind the eight ball in adjusting to a new paradigm where if we no longer have financial advisors, for instance, or if we have advisors for hire on one-offs, and like your medical records, your customers want to be able to pull all their data from your institution, go to the super fund, pull everything, go and just get their data so they can give it to an advisor to get a complete financial picture. That's one scenario that was painted for us at the forum. And I think that's a really interesting one because as we saw again in the Royal Commission, banks have a problem pulling your data all together in one place, or they say they do, that they've got five different systems in all different places. That's going to cost a lot of money to retroactively fit that if you are required by a regulator to do that. So now is the time to think about it um, and get working on that. We all know these things move slowly in regulatory land, but if it's going to happen, it's going to be really painful if you leave that to the last minute. And the same thing with uh, climate entries. Right, and, and I guess that sort of... If we want to reference something we did in the past where GRCA had an event um, in association with Clayton Newts last year looking at the blockchain and mm. where the role that mm. that can play in terms of, um, I guess, just having a really good ledger. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Knowing where everything is in the one place, knowing if you need to change it. We've got all kinds of implications as well with the GDPR. It is yeah. having a bigger reach uh, than we'd first anticipated. Um, so it's definitely still one to keep an eye on. Whose data you've got, where they're based, where you've got it based, um, and don't assume that everything is sitting in Australia. Um, you know, you really need to know absolutely where everything is. So there's lots of anticipatory risk, and I thought it was really interesting that ASIC had it on there. I thought it was really interesting that they were still having a conduct conversation, and the perspective from the international regulators was very, very similar. They are grappling with all of these things as well. They are asking the organisations they regulate to get their heads around them as well. Um, So it's a very common global thing. Um, We won't ever get unified global regulation as they have as they reiterated, that's not even the regulators not having a conversation because obviously they do. Mm. It's their local lobbying groups influencing policy um, that has an impact. 
So that's not going to happen, but we still need to all think ahead because it's, it's, we're cross-border for many, many, many transactions. Yeah, and that's actually a topic for another podcast. I'm looking at the bringing together of um, the sort of regulatory cooperation and sort of, super, I think, supervisory convergence was a term that was used at one mm. point in regulatory convergence, but that is for another podcast. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Naomi. No, you're very welcome, Kwame, and apologies, everybody. You'll have uh, Julian next time, who's very, very interesting. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the GRC Professional Podcast. This podcast was produced by the GRC Institute and the original music was written by Rob Neary.